Hi, I'm Susan. And this is Diane. And this is When Autumn Comes. Look, life sometimes just looks different than we thought it would. This is a podcast for mamas and for people who love them, whose lives were flipped upside down as a doctor looked into our eyes and explained our child's prognosis. Or for the mamas who get very little sleep as they face symptoms and behaviors that just aren't typical for other children. This is a place where we can take on this journey together because we know that this can be a sad, lonely, misunderstood path. But we also know that as colder temperatures and darker days begin to appear, so do the golden leaves and beautiful sunsets of autumn. We know that life comes in seasons. We know that in our world, 24 hours can hold so much change that it feels like four seasons in one day. We are here to let you share your story, let you laugh and let you cry, let you learn and let you grow, together with other mothers, when autumn comes. In case anybody hasn't looked at the calendar yet, today is Wednesday and Sunday is Father's Day. So if you and your kids need to scurry and make plans or buy a present, you got a couple days. We decided that after after so many people loved our Mother's Day episode when all of you called in, it was just it was a really wonderful episode. We decided we wanted to do something special for Father's Day too. So you know, if you've been listening to this podcast for like the last 6 months, you know we always have moms. This is a podcast for medical special needs moms and the people who love them. Well, today we are branching out a little bit. Today we are talking to a dad. We're talking to Lane. He is a dad of three and this story is unique. I I pray that this is a unique story. I pray that what this family has gone through, no other family has to go through because Lane and his wife and his family and his friends and their amazing village, they are taking a really bad accident and they are making the best that they can make out of it. They're helping other families and their community and our community in general. So I am so excited for you guys to meet Lane. Welcome to When Autumn Comes. This is going to be a fun Father's Day episode. I don't know if fun's the right word. Unique. Unique. We have a gentleman interview today, guys. So um, welcome to Lane. Lane, you're based in Alabama, correct? Yes, ma'am. Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. Oh, that's... Yes, (laughs) ma'am. I love it. So, Lane, tell us a little bit about your family. Um, So I'm Lane. I have a wife, Catherine, and three kids. Libby is six, Drew is five, and Grace is three. Catherine and I have been married 10 years tomorrow, actually. Happy anniversary. That'll be a fun celebration. We met at Auburn in college, and it was a blind date that just, it went perfectly and went from there. Catherine got a nursing degree from Auburn and I got a biomedical science degree and we started our life in Birmingham. Uh, Libby was our first born in 2014. And I guess that's when the, the story really begins. I mean, those first few years of marriage were fun and, and quiet, but then when kids came in, things really shifted. Yeah. And you look back, like I look back on my first few years of marriage and I was like, oh man, I was not as stressed, nearly as stressed as I am now as a medical parent. Do you guys ever think like, what did we do? How did we not get bored? (laughs) I mean, like, what would I fill my time with? And yet we were busy all the time without kids. That question is always something that we discuss. It's like Catherine would work weekends. And because of that, I was like, well, I guess I'll go work weekends, but my biggest hobby is golf. So I should have played a lot of golf before I had kids, but I didn't because I thought, I thought I didn't have any money. And I was like, I need to work to have that money. Well, now I look back and I'm like, what an idiot. I wish I could play some golf. (laughs) So tell us about Libby. What, what is Libby? What is Libby? Does she, 
Does she have favorite things? I've noticed I was looking at your family pictures that was on your website. I wasn't creeping stalking you on Facebook, but like she has a really good like Southern girl hair bow game going. Like she rocks a good hair bow. So her closet and Grace's closet, Andrew's closet are just filled. I mean, I think that's Catherine's hobby is buying kids clothes and bows for the girls and just making sure they're done to the nines anytime we leave the house, which it is really, she gets compliments all the time. Libby loves music. It's always been her thing since the beginning. Um, 90% of the time, if she's at home, we have some music playing, whether it be on the TV or a little music box when she's in her bed. Uh, it just, that's always been her thing. Brings so much joy to her. Uh, oddly enough, she loves hearing kids get in trouble too. Uh, she hears a lot of that around our house with the two other siblings. And when they were babies and they would cry, she would just light up. I mean, it was like joy on her face, picking and smiling. And I mean, she would just, it was awesome. So we have, uh, they have a little cousin who is about to turn one. So anytime he's around and he's crying, she's just over in her chair, just grinning. And oh, it was, it's so funny to That's see. incredible. Cause um, Sayla like screams whenever I'm like, even just right, raise my voice with my other two. And we're getting like the pre-tween years. And so it happens a lot around here. And she's like, ah, so I would love if a kid, if I could train her to be like, can you just laugh when I do this? Because that'd be incredible. Um, yeah. It, it, it's been always something we've kind of <laughs> laughed at. Like, it's it we get angry at the other two but then you see the joy on Libby's face and it kind of makes our anger go away a little bit uh it, it it makes it just a little bit easier for us to parent at those difficult times it's also kind of like a typical thing like i was an older sibling and when my sister would get in trouble i was like <laughs> like i mean it's kind of like a typical kid thing <laughs> absolutely i mean i'm the oldest of four boys so anytime my other brothers got in trouble it was like ha gotcha (laughs) so normally we ask what um disease or condition has affected your family in your case there was an accident that caused libby to be a quadriplegic is that correct that's correct she has spastic quad cp um they've told us there would be other things that have come along but Luckily, knock on wood, we haven't seen some of those other things yet. Um, But yeah, Libby's case is is irregular. Uh, When Libby was born, she was born full term. And we had no signs of trouble during the pregnancy. Everything was perfect. And it was a Friday the 13th that Catherine went into labor. And uh, it just didn't go as planned. We went into the hospital and... They started monitoring Catherine around 10 p.m. And I want to say it was around midnight, 1 a.m. They started noticing some decelerations in Libby's heartbeat. Uh, It really didn't concern them as much as maybe it should have in retrospect. But uh, the doctor came in a few times and he was like, well, you know, we're seeing these, but it's not a big deal. Then. Uh, maybe around 4 a.m. they saw a few more and they really started becoming concerned and they were like, all right, well, we got to speed this up. We got to get Libby out. And Libby was born at 5.02 a.m. on June 14th, 2014. And she was not breathing. Uh, They intubated bedside and they immediately rushed her to the NICU. So many things were going through our minds, mine especially. I mean, I was expecting everything they told you in all these birthing classes, mm-hmm. a, a crying baby, a, a red pink baby. And instead we got this grayish blue silent baby born. And I was so scared. I was so, I had so many questions going through my mind. I didn't know what to do. And Catherine of course had just delivered the So she had as many questions, if not more. And it was terrifying. It really was. Both of my kids went to the NICU. Um, my first was through an emergency C-section. The second was through a plan C-section. But as the dad who isn't going through the physical pain, like what are you feeling as they're sweeping your child away to the NICU? Oh, man. <laughs> Sorry. We're going we're no. to get right into the feelings. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, I was scared. If you want me to be honest, I, I, I had looked forward to this so much. 
like I said, I was the oldest of four boys, so I knew nothing about girls. I knew nothing about little girls. And I had all this like planned and excitement. And then to have it be so different than what I expected, I think it just showed me that my plan is really not in control. Our plans are ours for a reason, and there's a bigger picture, and God is in control. And it, it just, 10 seconds into Libby's life, how quickly was that shown to me? And I was just like, wow. But I, I was scared. I didn't know how to feel other than just be scared. Um they didn't give us a ton of answers. Obviously at first they were trying to figure out what was going on. And when they took her up to the NICU, Catherine had to stay behind, but they were like, dad, you can come up here. And I, I went up there pretty quickly. And I mean, there was medical professionals everywhere and I just was stunned. I was overwhelmed. Um, I was frightened. Yeah. Right. Uh, there were so many things that a 20, what was that? So it was 14 out of 27, 26. Um, it frightened me. And there were so many things going through my mind. I, I just, I froze. I took a mental picture and I got as little information as I could. And then I went back to be with Catherine because honestly, you know, they didn't give me information. They didn't give me the opportunity to stay up there. They were like, go back down. We'll update you when we can. That is unbelievable. Like it's, you know, being the mom and like carrying a baby for nine months, first of all, you can't describe the connection that the dad has during that whole pregnancy versus the mom. But then I'm sure you have this feeling of what it's going to be like, where when I went into labor, I already had somewhat of a connection and I was just excited to hold the baby. I was like, oh my gosh, it's you. I know you. So it's really surreal to hear like how literally you've probably felt like you ran into a brick wall expecting to meet this, you know, beautiful child for the first time. And it was completely like the rug was just pulled out from under you. It's unreal. So then you went and did a NICU stay. We did. We had total stay in the NICU was 38 days. The first three days were extremely difficult, very touch and go. Um, The first day that Libby was born, one of the neonatologists said, you know, not all children survive. And one day into parenting, you can't mm. imagine, maybe you can, I hope you can't imagine what that feels like. Terrifying. Yeah. Pain. The next day was Father's Day. And I remember them telling me and us that we they did not want us to touch Libby at that point. Because every time we touched her, they could see increase in her levels. And they were like, we don't want that. The first three days they had her on the cooling blanket, trying to minimize any kind of trauma that she went through at birth. So you can imagine being that new dad on your first father's day, being told don't touch your baby. It was tough. Yeah. And then 12 days in. Yeah. um, Things really hit the fan, right? Yeah, that was that was tough. That's probably the one of the worst days of my entire life. Um, so the third day, they finally diagnosed her with pulmonary hypertension, and they began treatments for that. And we were making progress. We were doing things we were supposed to. And I remember distinctly the night before, so it had been June 25th of 2014, Catherine and I, we had a really good routine where we were up at the hospital most of the day and then we would go home and eat dinner and we'd come back and we'd, you know, talk to Libby and make sure everything was fine. Then we'd go home and sleep at home. And the next morning I'd wake up, I'd make a phone call the second I woke up and I'd check in and make sure her night was fine. And I remember that night before we left, there was just this weird feeling of, do we spend the night here tonight or, you know, I don't remember how the 25th went, but I think her day was kind of up and down, up and down, but the night was kind of rough. So we kind of had that thought, maybe we should spend the night here. We hadn't done it yet, but maybe we should. Well, we decided against it and we went home and I uh, may not have been the right decision, but that's not here nor there. Uh, The next morning I woke up and I called the nurse and it may have been seven o'clock, seven 15. And I could just tell something was different. There was a sense of, urgency when I talked to the nurse to get me off the phone that she needed to focus on Libby that hadn't been there the other mornings when I had called. 
And I told Catherine, I said, I I didn't get a good feeling about that. So my father-in-law and I went to the hospital, which fortunately was only about a five minute drive. So we got up there and there were more nurses in the room than there normally were. And I was very involved. I asked a lot of questions every day. I got to learn all the levels that they were drawing. And I asked every time, I was like, I want to know what her blood gases were. I want to know what her O2 sats. And usually they had told me the levels. And this time they were like, well, you know, we can't, we're not going to share those with you yet. And I was like, something's not right. I started noticing the doctor and the nurse practitioner and the nurse were pushing different medications, you know. Previously, it had been, well, we're going to give her something for pain or we're going to give her something for um, her breathing or we're going to give her something to get waste out and stuff like that. This time it was, we're going to push sugar and sugar and sugar. And I was like, this is not normal. So I told Catherine, I texted her, I was like, you need to get up here. Something's not right. And And they're still not telling you anything. uh, They're not giving us any information. Um, They're just so frantic. They were so focused in a different way than they had been the entire time. It was around noon that the neonatologist came in and he said, we, we, uh, we suspect something happened overnight. And I said, well, yeah, I picked up on that myself. And Catherine was a pediatric nurse. So she obviously knew something was up also, but they were like, well, we're going to, uh, we're going to do investigation and we'll, we'll meet back with you. Well, of course we stayed at Libby's bedside that whole day. We didn't leave, uh, we did go home that night, but I think we were, I was probably there from 8 a.m. to, I don't know, 10 p.m. or so. It's a long, long day. When he said, we suspect something happened, did he mean, like, the way I would take that, do you mean, like, my kid crashed? Or do you mean something, like, somebody did something to my child overnight? Like, how did you take that? Both Catherine and I come, come from a scientific background, so my mind especially went to there was probably an error and I, I worked in quality control. So that's obviously where my mind went. Uh, Catherine having the nursing background, I think kind of knew something had happened, whether it was an error or something they weren't telling us, but I think we both kind of suspected a medication error or something along those lines. But like I said, there wasn't a ton of information being given to us. The next day uh, they pulled us in to a closed door meeting and it was, the neonatologist, the chief nurse of the NICU, and then the president of like quality control for the hospital or something along those lines. And they told us, they said, look, we've done a quick investigation and we found that there was an error in the pharmacy last night that made its way up to Libby's room. That was it. They didn't give us specifics. Maybe they, I don't think they had specifics at that time, but they didn't. I don't even think they told us the drug at the time. It wasn't until months later when we got a law firm involved that we found out the specifics. And how can they treat her if they're not disclosing what the drug is that changed your life? Like, how could they know how to treat her? Or were they treating her based off of her symptoms at that point? Yeah, they were treating her based off of her blood. Her glucose levels were were not reading, not functioning. And it was 12 to 18 hours that they could not get her levels to a readable level, which is greater than 20. And that had never been a problem. The entire first 12, 11 days, she had been up and down, up and down. And most of them have been high glucose readings. And this time it was bottomed out. And that was a big red flag to both Catherine and I, because it was like, why are we polar opposite from what we had been? Right. We came to find out they gave her a hundred times overdose of insulin and it happened at midnight on June 26th of 2014. They did not realize it until that morning. They were drawing gases every three to six hours. It was, I think that 6 a.m. drawing where they started to realize, Hey, something's wrong. Something's not right. And at that time, her brain had been starved of sugar And that's when they were trying to bring all of her levels back up. And it was just frantic in that room because they were realizing, hey, something's wrong. This is what happened. So they knew what it was. They just weren't giving us all of that information at that time. You went home from the NICU not knowing what happened. 
Is that correct? I think at some point they did tell us it was an insulin overdose. They did not tell us the exact amount until, like I said, we had legal action being taken. But I do think they eventually mentioned, and it may have been that next day, that I'm not 100% sure of. I think both Catherine and I had figured it out on our own that it was definitely an insulin issue. But I don't recall exactly when they gave us the the information. Information is power when it comes to caring for medical kids. And I can't imagine not knowing. So prior to day 12, before they made this mistake, did you guys know what her outcome looked like from birth? Not exactly. They had told us in that very first meeting, you know, not all kids survive. Things happen at birth that can alter your child's life. So they had told us they wanted to run all these tests before we ever left the NICU and do all these things. And they didn't do hardly any of them until that incident happened. Uh, Fortunately, we had some ultrasounds of her brain that showed some, some areas of concern when she was born, but they were improving and everything that they were treating was improving. We were making improvements And then that happened and all the improvements just went down the train. The, the ultrasounds of her brain showed a small bleed and then a smaller bleed. And that was before the incident. And then after the incident, the, the ultrasound and they ended up taking an MRI showed total damage to her brain. They brought in an outside pediatric neurologist to be the, the bearer of bad news, if you will. And I, we met with him on three different occasions. The first occasion he told us he used a lot of big medical terms and I had already turned off my medical brain or scientific brain at that point. I was just being dad. And basically when he left the room, Catherine and I were both just kind of like, what exactly did he say? Other than the fact we distinctly remember him saying that Libby's brain showed low voltage well, that next meeting, in between those, the first meeting and the second meeting, they had taken an MRI of her brain. And it's when they took that that they delivered the just bombshell that Libby's life would be forever altered and that she would never walk. She would never talk. She would never be able to hold her head up. She would never be able to regulate her body temperature. And the things that they said, uh, I just you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. You wouldn't wish it on anyone. I think that it was two neonatologists, the pediatric neurologist and Catherine's OB were all in the room when they looked at the MRI and they all described it as just their mouths hit the floor. They had never seen an MRI that bad on a living person. Wow. The pediatric neurologist has been a nationwide expert in imaging and in tests for 30 years. And he said it is like an atomic bomb went off in Libby's brain. Wow. Can I ask you something personal? Yeah. How did you and your wife support each other through that? Or were you both just kind of numb to where you had to process it separately? (laughs) There was a lot of tears. (laughs) There was a lot of, uh, a lot of pain, a lot of questions. Um, I can't really speak to how we supported each other. I I mean, there was a lot of hugging. There was a lot of sitting in each other's laps. There was, I tried to stay as optimistic as I could. It wasn't always easy. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you feel like that was your job in it? Like from a male perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I've always kind of viewed myself to try to be the stronger, to be the rock. And I was pretty good at it uh, up until Libby was born. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like she's turned me into a softy and uh, opened up a lot of floodgates that weren't there originally. And uh, it, it, it has brought out a lot of emotion in me and I, I remember after the doctor left and had told us all this, 
at that point we were just kind of like, whatever, we're going to hold this baby. We're going to, we're going to love her as much as we can as quick uh, for as long as we can, because they made it seem like her life was going to be so short and so abbreviated that we had to, we had very few months with her. Um, and I remember getting her out and holding her and I held her so tight that Catherine was like, you need to put her down. Like you're, you're squeezed. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I mean, <laughs> when someone just told you your baby's going to die in a few months, I didn't know anything else other than just holding her and surrounding her with love. We're going to take a quick time out. And before you click fast forward thinking that this is the same ad you've heard over and over and over again, let me just tell you, it's not. I have something new to tell you. We have the 4AM Mom Club. I know, I know, I told you it was something new, but it is. Hang on. We have something also called the When Autumn Comes Society. The 4AM Mom Club is still open and still available to support medical and special needs moms who are going through... uh, life. But we have the When Autumn Comes Society. It is now on Facebook, and that is a place for moms, dads, friends, caregivers, uh, nurses, grandmas, I don't know, doctors, anybody, anybody. I'm not, I'm not, I'm taking anybody and everybody, guys, anybody and everybody, because we love you all, and you guys love us. So join us on Facebook at the When Autumn Comes Society. I feel like we, you know, maybe over-exaggerated with the word society, but hey, we got class. Join us there. We talk about things that make us hopeful and hopefully just life. If you are a medical and special needs mom, though, we still have the 4AM Mom Club for extra support with moms who get it. See you there. I look back to my NICU journey and I was a wreck. Was your wife a wreck? Like, and I mean that in the nicest way, but I, between pumping and going back and forth and not knowing what to expect the next minute, never mind the next day, how was it supporting your wife through that journey in general? It was a challenge. Obviously, the hormones and everything are there. And then there's the added stress of Libby. She handled it like a pro. I mean, she handles most everything like a pro. Um, Obviously, there were some weak times, but I think she's stronger than she wants to admit. Obviously, there were so many tears, so much question, so many feelings of my profession let me down. The medical field has let us down. I just tried to stay optimistic. I told her, even even after that very first meeting with the doctors, when they said there was an error, I told Catherine, I was like, all right, stay strong. If Libby gets through this and she's not injured, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to take any action against the hospital because the, the staff, for the most part, was so good to us, so good to Libby. But when that happened and the doctor told us all of the issues Libby was going to have in her life, some of that optimism went away and I had to say, look, let's face reality and let's take action. We can't just sit back and let that go on without, without repercussions. Libby has to get some sort of justice. And you can't let it happen to other families too. Like this can't be an accident that is reoccurring. Exactly. And, and that was one of the first meetings we ever had with our lawyers. We said, while this is terrible that it happened to us, We want to ensure it does not happen to anyone else. Mm -hmm. We want Libby's laws to be in place at that hospital forever. Those don't ever need to go away. They need to change on a hospital-wide level Mm -hmm. because of Libby Hagen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Caring for a special needs child puts an immense amount of stress and pressure. And I mean, it's a full-time job. So logistically and financially, you have to be able to do that. Absolutely. That's unreal. Both of us were working at the time and obviously Catherine had her time away for maternity leave. And, but I was only supposed to have a week off, but I worked for a great company at the time and they took care of me and Catherine and people would come visit and take care of us. And they gave me, they said from the very first day, they said, do not think about coming back to work until your daughter is home. 
And I actually went back to work the day before Libby left the NICU only to fill in everybody, thank them and just say, okay, well, we're going home tomorrow. And then I took a few more days with her. But um, when I went back, it just, the, the love and the outpouring was so great. I almost felt guilty because they had done so much for me. And I didn't feel like when I went back that my focus was at work. My focus was at home. If physically I was at work, but mentally I was in a, a bad place. I was thinking more about, well, my my daughter's going to die in three months. I'd, I'd rather be holding her and making memories with her. But I felt the pull to be back at work, to have some sense of normalcy, get back to our lives. And then I felt that financial pull of, well, you've got to make money so that your family survives. And that's just some of the feelings and emotions that I remember going through. I'm sure there was a lot more. So now we are seven years, six or seven years past this, and Libby has proven them wrong for multiple things at this point, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, your face just changed completely (laughs) from like, I mean, you just lit up completely. At first they told you three months and now she's like, no, I got this. Don't worry, dad, I got this. That's exactly right. Ever since the beginning, she's been proving us wrong. They originally told us when we left the hospital, uh, they didn't give us a ton of information. We always joke that they pushed us into oncoming traffic because they didn't give us a lot of information. They were just like, take her home, love her, hold on to her for a few months. and She's going to pass away. So we did that. Then we went to see her pediatric neurologist, I think at her three month checkup. And he said, okay, He said, I think looking at things, taking another scan, seeing how we all are doing. He said, let's get some medication straight. He said, but I I really don't see her living to be beyond three years old. And I said, okay. So we prepared ourselves for that. And the first 18 months were a really hard time. Uh, We couldn't get her medication straight. She did not sleep much as a child. There was a lot of physical exhaustion. I mean, I was working 50, 60 hour weeks as well as not sleeping much at home with Libby. Uh, There was a lot of trying to figure out what kind of therapies and what kind of doctors we needed to add to the equation to get some of these things figured out. We finally got a good, stable medicine regime at maybe the 15 month period and life started to slow down. Then, of course, we brought Drew into the equation. Well, (laughs) that changes things. (laughs) One early conversation that we had to have that was extremely difficult for both Catherine and I was, do we trust to have another child? Do we have the trust in the medical world to bring another child in after what happened to Libby? And there were a lot of conversations between Catherine and I. There were a lot of conversations between us and our legal team, because at one point we had considered going back to the same hospital. We didn't, obviously we uh, were kind of recommended to go to a different one, which was a very, very, very good decision on our part. Can you imagine that staff at that hospital knowing your story (laughs) being like, okay, people, we need to like get it together. Right. Well, at first, We tried to keep our story to ourselves. I don't think we really told the story until we did a news story in the summer of 2016. And that's when we put everything out there. We kind of bit in our tongues and just held everything together. Uh, We kept everybody updated on Libby, but the whole story wasn't out there until summer of 2016. And then a local news station shared it and everyone was like, wow, we had no idea. Obviously, we had told family and friends, but like people that had kind of kept up on social media and whatnot, they were just blown away. Did they all think that her complications were due to birth? Yeah, they didn't know that the medication error had happened. So they just assumed that when she was in the NICU, it was all birth trauma. And I'm sure like sharing your story was almost like a coming out. There's got to be levels of anger in that grief. This happened to my child, I couldn't protect her. When all of us had our special needs kids born, you know, there is so much grief, but your story must have layers of anger in it too, that I, I don't know. There was I would a want lot to punch somebody. 
there were many times that that thought came to my mind, if not worse thoughts. It, it didn't make it easier that that hospital was so close and it was so near and dear to my heart because the place we chose to have Libby, my grandmother had worked there for 25 years and she retired from there. Myself and my three younger brothers were all born there. I had two surgeries as a, as a teenager at that facility. That place had so many good memories. Mm-hmm. And in one short period, wiped it all away. Yeah. And, um, but there was a lot of times that we drove past the hospital and that there may have been some things said or some, some gestures made towards the facility. And it's (laughs) like, you know, occasionally that still happens. There was a lot of anger. The more we got into the legal side of things and we learned about what exactly happened, it brought a lot more, probably a lot more frustration and anger because you saw just how it wasn't just one person. It was a system-wide failure. There were four people that touched the medication that harmed Libby. Four medical professionals. And then it just made it that much more difficult. When, when we, we, You want more knowledge, but then when you get it, it almost makes it worse to have it. At least in our case, it did. Because uh-huh. then you had names that you could you could tie it to. Mm-hmm. It became more difficult. I think the more knowledge and the deeper we got, there was more resentment towards the hospital, towards the facility, the individuals involved. That, that just added to our hurt and our pain that, that we felt and being disappointed by the medical profession. This is kind of off topic, but when you were talking about you and your wife talking about having more children or all I thought about was... I don't know what it's like to have a normal marriage without a special needs child and having these heavy, heavy, heavy topics to talk about. What do you think it looks like to be married with just typical children, not having to go through your child being swept away, not knowing if they're going to pass away in three months and then three years and now she's six or the unknowns or Susan, you going through what you're going through with Benji and Laura. Like, like what does it look like? I mean, I'm so thankful because I admire my spouse so much for that, like because we've gotten through that and been able to have those conversations and still be married and not sleep and you putting in 60 hours. But how do you actually, how do we stay married is the question I want to. I mean, Um, poor Lane, we're going to put him on the spot right now, but like (laughs) we talk about how we want to kill our spouse on a daily basis. I mean, not actually kill, not dateline murder. But like, yeah, but I have immense respect for him and love him so much. It takes, I think in our household, we balance each other out in weird ways. Do you and your wife, like, I mean, my husband is very analytical and I'm very like, he focuses on the numbers and I focus on the feelings and together we work really well at keeping our tiny humans alive. Yeah, I definitely think that that's pretty accurate for Catherine and I. I'm a busybody. Like I'm always the one that's like, all right, we got to get up. We got to be out the door by this time. We got to, I'm, I'm all about that. Getting the job organization. And it's not that Catherine's not good at it. It's just not her strength. She's not a morning person. So mornings I get up, I get, get everybody rolling. I honestly think our relationship and our marriage is so much stronger because of what we went through. Yes. We had to rely on each other more than we ever probably thought we would have at a really early age. I probably had a much more difficult upbringing than she did. Went through a lot of emotional and just tough things, whereas she didn't have to. So I feel like I was probably stronger emotionally. Now, that didn't really prepare me for what we went through, but it did make it easier for me to be a rock for her at times. And that's not to say I, I didn't break down it many, many, many times, but uh, I think Libby's life and Libby's incident will make Catherine and I be, and has made us be better people. And it's just, it, it's made our marriage stronger. I mean, tomorrow is 10 years and I'm like, I don't even remember the first few, but I these last six, seven years, it's like, our love has grown and our patience may not be there, but uh, <laughs> it, it, we do balance each other out. I mean, there are days, obviously, that we 
or at each other's throat. I think that's normal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we both have different, I have golf as my main hobby. So I, I get out of the house and do that. And now that COVID is kind of calming down, she's able to get back out and meet some of her friends and get a little bit of that social aspect of life. But um, I really, I think my biggest thing is that Libby's life has taught me is uh, it just gave me a true understanding of my faith. The day she was born, I thought I knew what faith was, but it all was changed. And I learned how strong and how weak my faith was at the same time. We had a great pastor that would sit with us when Libby was in the hospital and he would, he came and sat on the hospital floor with us the day we got the terrible news. And we were just talking about that last night. And I was like, the little things like that are things that will probably be in my mind forever. Um, mm-hmm. That pastor's moved down to Florida and we've moved churches, but I'll never forget that moment. I think there's so many unexpected moments that you go through with your spouse that, I mean, there are days where I'm like, I, this is unreal that this is our life. And I'm so thankful for it. And with the incredibly low lows that we've experienced together, it almost makes the highs that much better because you just see this profound love and devotion and strength coming out of this person that you love. And you know, you, I mean, I know I could not do this alone. And speaking to faith, it's just unbelievable. The people that I've come across in my life and how I feel like God knew that this was going to be our life. I mean, he knew it. And he was like, no, you need this person because this is a person that will not leave you and will not, like, he has the strength to get through this with you. Absolutely. Can I, this is, I don't want to sound snarky, but how Diane just said, God knew this was going to be our life. Does that sting for, like, for me, like, my kids were born with rare diseases and Diane too. Like, for you, this was an accident. How does that affect your faith? I always cling on to everything happens for a reason. I can say that to myself, but when people say that to me, I'm like, "Mm -mm." like, you can't (laughs) use that line. But in your case, this was an accident. Your daughter was not born with this brain damage. How does that affect your faith? It teaches me more about forgiveness and it makes me realize we are all so flawed and we are all forgiven and coming to a place where we had to forgive the people that caused our daughter lifelong harm was a very difficult place. I think I probably got there before Catherine may have. And and I think my upbringing is, was because of that. I had to forgive a lot as a younger child and teenager. And because of that, I was able to get to a place of true forgiveness earlier and quicker than maybe Catherine did. The people that caused harm, the actual four people that may have touched the medication that caused harm to Libby, I can forgive them, but I won't be able to ever forget it. I won't ever be able to say that it's okay because it's not okay. What Libby went through is not okay. No matter how big of a check they wrote to us, no matter how many laws they put in place at the hospital, it should have never happened. We actually ran into the nurse who put the medication into Libby's body last summer. And Catherine, I had to, <laughs> I had to hold her back a little bit, but I just, I gave her a hug and I held her and I said, Libby is perfect. Regardless of what this person did, Libby is perfect. We are stronger because of it. Our relationship is stronger because of it. Just avoid this. I also hate the saying when life hands you lemons, make lemonade, because this situation sucks and we are not required to make lemonade or margaritas or whatever. Like we can keep our lemons for all they're worth. But you are make you have like a lemonade stand. <laughs> you have taken <laughs> you're not just making lemonade, you have the whole shop. It's like um, a whole bar. <laughs> Tell us about Libby's Friends and how you started this organization and what prompted you to go, we have to do good with this situation. 
Once our, our legal case settled in 2016, our life was changed. Libby had a trust that was set up for all of her needs from every, every thing is taken care of. Um, Catherine and I were taken care of. And it was at that point I started just to think, okay, we've had a lot of people that have invested in our life and into Libby's life. I want to come up with some way to, to show appreciation to some of those people. Now it was gradual that, that things came up up in my mind and I kind of just pushed it away because I was still working. Um, in February of 2018, I officially retired per se uh, to be full-time dad and to start making memories as a family. And I'm so thankful that I was able to do that. Catherine and I always kind of say we were unfortunately fortunate. And I, I believe that every day. Uh, what happened to Libby is so unfortunate, but because of that, our life is so much greater and so much better as a family that our kids hopefully will have these strong memories of, of our time and our, our life together. It was maybe end of 2019. I started this, this thought in my mind was becoming stronger of you got to do something. You got to do something. You got to do something. And I started thinking, okay, we've been doing this for five and a half years now. What have I learned? What, what can I do to help other people? I go back to my early days of parenting and when I was working and Libby was going to all these therapy visits and doctors and how much uncertainty there was. But I just remember thinking personally, Catherine would be taking Libby to most of these appointments. I would come to him when I could, but I remember we'd go to her physical rehabilitation doctor and he was like, well, we need these hand splints. You need these thumb splints. You need these AFOs. You need this back brace. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Get it, get it, get it, get it. But then when those bills came in, the thoughts were different. Well, how are we going to pay for this? How are we going to ever catch up? And I started thinking, there's really not a lot of help out there. We didn't qualify for any government assistance because I was working, because Catherine was working. And then when she retired, I still, we were, we were at a place where we didn't qualify. So it was just, you have to pay for it. And even with insurance, those bills add up thousands of dollars for a wheelchair, a few hundred dollars for a pair of AFOs. And I started thinking, okay, maybe that's where I need to focus. So end of 2019, I started putting some notes down in my phone and I was would have quick conversations with Catherine and I don't think she took me seriously. And then maybe January, February of 2020, I brought it back up to her and I said, all right, I want to talk to you about this. So I told her my ideas and she was like, okay, maybe you're into this more than I thought you were. And I said, well, do you want to see my note on my phone? And she was like, sure. And I showed it to her and she scrolled and she scrolled and she was like, okay, you're definitely more invested in this than I thought you were. (laughs) So what I had put down was just basic, you know, we were going to be called Libby's friends. It made so much sense to me. She has such this bubbly, beautiful personality. Yes, she can't communicate. She can smile, she can light up a room, and she does. Catherine and I always ask, what would Libby have been like? This question we'll never get the answer to, but we have a pretty good idea. So I I just, I've always thought that she was just going to be so friendly, so kind, so soft-spoken. So Libby's friends became natural. I was like, okay, well, that's easy. All right, what's our mission going to be? Well, our mission became, we are here to ease the financial burden for those living with a disability because there are so many young parents who are going through what we went through who may not have the resources that we came to have it just became my job is to help and along with helping financially we're advocates we are trying to make everyone aware of what happened to libby And we're trying to help people get in touch with these organizations that can help them outside of us, help these people emotionally. Just having conversations with some of these parents I've met has, I can tell has helped them. And it's helped me in the same way. Almost every single parent that has put in an application with me, I have personally reached out and talked to them on the phone. And it gives me a a way to further verify everything they're telling me. But it also gives me an outlet to talk about Libby, to talk about what we're doing and how we can help. But it also gives them that outlet to tell me what they may be going through. Especially lately, Catherine's kind of joke. She's like, you're everybody's sounding board lately. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, that's okay. 
the Beast Friends is is teaching me a lot as well as helping me help others. And I'm very thankful for that. And I have felt extreme gratification in the past few months. We started this in August of 2020. And how many families have you helped? How many children have you worked with at this point? Um, we are in the 15 to 16 range. Okay. I was full bore February of 2020. And then COVID happened and I got derailed a few months. And then I picked it back up last summer. And in August of 2020, we officially got everything off the ground. And I just have been running ever since. I have a lot of plans and and hopes and dreams that I hope we can make come to fruition. But I wake up every day and I think, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? And it's not to say that I, I put my family on the back burner, but sometimes I do feel guilty that I've probably put a little more attention and focus into Libby's friends than maybe I have my wife and kids. Um, I'm sure Catherine would probably verify that at times. <laughs> well. But it's been extremely gratifying. And I have been, I'm so thankful that I get to do this. No, that's awesome. You made, you made a bar. I mean, seriously, life gave you lemons and you mix them in a drink. For like your entire community. Yeah, which is incredible. As of right now, Libby's Friends, just so that our listeners can, Libby's Friends is helping um, medical and special needs families in Alabama, correct? And like your area. Okay. Yeah, we're statewide in Alabama. We've helped families up in Huntsville, which is north of us, and then families south down in like the Dothan area. I have touched base with with many, many people, many different parts of the state. We have plans to maybe grow to a few other neighboring states. But right now, I just want to focus on Alabama and spend some time here growing our our base and getting our feet just a wide base. And once we get that off, I'll consider going bigger with it. Our job is to to help families obtain medical equipment, medical devices, therapy costs, anything that's associated with raising a special needs child, I'll entertain it. We've gotten requests from as little as like $100 to as much as like $13,000 so far. I saw on your Facebook page, one was like, you helped with gas money to get to therapy. Yeah, And then other is like equipment. So like, I mean, I think that's so cool that it's such a varied thing that you're able to provide to families. Yeah. And when we started it, you know, one thing I've noticed when some of these other organizations that provide assistance is they have some of these restrictions, like some of them have an age restriction. Well, at 18, you phase out of the system. Well, in my eyes, your disability doesn't go away at 18. You shouldn't phase out of anything. So my job was, okay, we don't have an age restriction. Then there are some that have a dollar restriction. Well, we can't do anything more than $500. Well, we don't have that. And I can't provide assistance to everyone that comes to me, but I can try. And I have tried. And I will continue to try and help in any way I can. It's a huge blessing. And I'm very proud of what we've done. And I'm very hopeful that we will continue to make an impact on the special needs community in Alabama and hopefully other neighboring states at some point. Speaking of hope, we could uh, probably talk to you for hours more, but at some point we got to wrap this up. So we ask one question at the end of every episode. What gives you hope? Seeing Libby with her siblings and seeing her siblings, how they're impacted by her is so beautiful. Um, when Catherine and I decided that we were going to expand our family beyond Libby, our biggest desire was for Libby to impact that next sibling and for her to make them better and make them stronger. And those two, Grace and Drew, love her so much and they worship the ground that she rolls over and they, they are her biggest fans. And that is what keeps us going and what gives us hope and it's grown from the siblings to her friends at school her teachers at school um, people at church and just to see how much of an impact this little girl has made and she hasn't she can't even communicate she has a little device that she can activate with her feet but it's just a smile it's just her presence that radiates joy and that is what gives us hope 
It's amazing. I have to say, because this is a Father's Day episode, Lane, thank you so much for sharing your family with us. And to all the dads out there, like just coming from a mom and a wife, we could not do it without you. And we love you all very, very much. And we just appreciate the strength that you bring to the families and the kids and you know, I, I think we all joke a lot at how much is on our plates, but I think it's very fair to say that, you know, you, you are an integral part of raising these kids and we couldn't do it without you. So thank you. And the sarcastic side of me has to add that at some point I need my husband's muscle to move my two children who can't physically move themselves. So like, we appreciate you for that too. Oh, totally. Bath nights. I'm like, I can't do it tonight, honey. Can you at least (laughs) get them out of the bathtub? (laughs) Yeah, I I completely understand. I think I would say 75% of bath nights for Libby are are usually my doing. And that's fine. She's, she's a long, but skinny girl. I mean, she's, I think she's 30 pounds. We've just hit that 30 pound plateau, but that's a lot for, I mean, my wife's five, four, so she's not, I mean, Libby, if you was standing is probably chest height. <laughs> she's a, she's a tall drink mm-hmm. of water. Yeah. <laughs> well, you should come teach my husband because it was like an unwritten rule when we got married that like I had to do bath and then comes along a 40 pound special needs child. Cause he hates doing bath. And I'm like, Okay, I will scrub. You got to get in and get her out because this is getting a little much for me. <laughs> yeah. Now, there's there's many, many, many things that I have no problem doing. Bath time is one of them. But Catherine uh, was a nurse at one point. So when it comes to some of the things, I'm like, okay, this is you got to come be your nurse right now because <laughs> daddy doesn't have the stomach for it or daddy, you know, I can't do this. But yes, 90% of things I have no problem doing. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Lane, it was really great to meet you. I appreciate y'all having me on and opportunity to share the story is, is great. And I appreciate it very much. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So how was that for having um, a male, a dad on our, on our show? I have to say I loved it because I mean, I love my husband, but jokingly, we I think we dog on the guys a lot. And they, first of all, just what he's doing for his community is incredible. Um, but it's just really nice to hear like how he supports his wife, supports his kids just from a male perspective, because, you know, the redundancy of life and, and doing this job, you kind of lose it sometimes. You lose the perspective, you lose the, you know, profound respect that you have for your spouse. So I just, it was really neat to hear. I, I really, I think it's so cool to hear the male perspective, especially like when he was talking about when his wife gave birth and his daughter was swept away to the NICU, Mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've experienced that firsthand and Mike went to the NICU and I stayed in recovery and my husband is lovely but he is a man of few words so to just hear like I was scared and Mm -hmm. you know it's it is hmm, what's the word I want like it is a very traumatic experience to give birth and have your child taken away because you're in so much physical pain hormonal pain emotional pain and I can say in the heat of that moment I was not focused on my husband Mm mm-hmm and to be able to hear his side of yes. that, I think, was really comforting. I loved that. Yes, mm-hmm. I loved it. I've always wondered, like, what the dads are thinking during labor and delivery, you know, and to get a glimpse into that was really special. So thank you, Lane. Yeah, thank you very much. And we will catch you guys on Friday for the 5 a.m. Dad Club. <laughs> I love it. This is Diane, and I have to go make some lunch for Sayla. And this is Susan. I have to go. I have to go pee. Diane told me to say it. I I really do. (laughs) I I actually do too. So yes. Bye.
We know you have so many choices on how to spend your time. Thank you so much for choosing to spend it with us. We would be honored to hear your unique, complicated, and hope-filled stories. We would love for you to connect with us and share your story on our website, www.whenautumncomes.com, and you can find us on social media at When Autumn Comes Podcast. Also, check us out at 4AM Mom Club, where we will be sharing our middle-of-the-night shenanigans, Etsy finds, Netflix faves, and other things that get us through. We would love for you to hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll continue to hear unique stories, feel a whole lot of comfort and connection, and hopefully share in a few laughs. We are new to the podcasting world, so this show is produced by yours truly. With hope and a whole lot of excitement, Diane and Susan. See you next time.